Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you're a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, growing abundantly, and if you want to improve your overall life. My name is Jay Phantom, and I've made it my purpose to unbox and share the amazing stories from people of every profession all over the world. I'm grateful that you're here today. Let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Quick, someone pinch me. That's how I feel about my next guest today. I'm excited because I have the another powerhouse woman on the story box today. Her name is Amy Wolf, and I have no doubt that she will inspire you to become better in your life. This conversation is about hope, what hope does with, with people, why we need hope, and the power that hope can bring uh, to someone's life. She Amy Wolf, for those of you that don't know who she is, she is a speaker, an author now of the book, Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World, not the world, but your world. And now for those of you that want to know more about who Amy is, she's a speaker, coach for a consultant company uh, she co-owns with her father and a tech TEDx speaker coach. In 2017, she accidentally started a global movement of spreading love through simple yard signs. Imagine that, right? She enjoys engaging in difficult conversations with unlikely friends, having vacuum lines in her carpet, nurturing a ridiculous amount of houseplants, traveling with her daughters and husband and leading teams uh, to Rwanda. She and her family live in Portland, Oregon, and my goodness, was this a fun conversation that I have no doubt you guys are going to love, but Amy has a new book out. It's her first book. It's called Signs of Hope. And on the front cover, she has four signs, which are very, very important and impactful. You are enough. You are worthy of love. Don't give up. You are not alone. I hope those words resonate with many of you. Uh, But trust me when I say this, you're going to want to get a copy of her book. Uh, It is full, and I mean full of stories. So if you love stories and, you know, why wouldn't you, then go and get a copy of her book. Now, if you want to live a life of impact, you've got to start small, grow unexpectedly and contain a simple message, which is hope. You can make a difference in the world today through small acts of kindness. And that is why her message is so powerful. And her book will show you exactly how. Amidst the the struggles and busyness of daily life, it can seem impossible to offer hope and happiness to others. Sometimes living a life of impact seems just out of reach. What can I possibly do? Most of us, I have no doubt, ask. Well, Amy Wolf often felt this way, that her personal grief and, and comfortable life made her unqualified to connect and uplift others. But one day she decided to do something. And that something sparked a nationwide and worldwide movement of of encouragement, which became the Don't Give Up movement. Signs of Hope is an intimate account of the yard signs with encouraging messages she created with her family and placed around their city and how that act of love has sparked a new journey, helping you find your own way to make a difference and brighten the world. In her book, uh, Signs of Hope, 
She lays out the heart behind her movement and how you can become a giver and taker of hope, offering encouragement, healing, and inspiration to those around you with the resources, talents, and gifts you have. It is your catalyst to doing something today because there's no perfect time to help others. The time is now. So my friends, having said all that, I would love for you guys to let Amy know what you think of this conversation. Uh, I have no doubt that many of you will be inspired by hearing her story. Uh, She's an incredible woman of faith and uh, she's been doing, she's just a, a genuine human being that you can relate to. I was able to relate to many of much of her story. Sorry. Um, so please share it around to your friends and family. Let everyone know. Uh, don't forget before you go to subscribe and leave a five-star rating and review over on our podcast. Goes a long way. And once again, spreading the love of hope and peace and, and joy to people that really need it. So appreciate each and every one of you. You know what time it is, right? It is time to, we're going to, what are we going to do? We're going to run into the story box today and listen to the story of hope from none other than Amy Wolf. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. I know you do a lot of speaking and you know, I'm a speaker coach. So if you wanted to ever connect, I would love to support you and cheer you on any way I could. Please. I absolutely love that. I need a lot of help with my, <laughs> my lingo. <laughs> I guess you could say getting rid of the Aussie accent. To make oh, no, 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 hard. no, no. Very charming. I'm sure people would pay me double the amount if I could give them an ac- an interesting, <laughs> compelling accent. <laughs> so tell me, first of all, how did I do in terms of my, my delivery, my accent, the whole thing? Well, you're making direct eye contact through Zoom and you're using great gestures that make you look really comfortable and passionate. So far, so good. Cool. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) After a great start already. Um, Yeah. I'm going to send you an invoice for that, but yeah, yeah, good start. I'll I'll expect it later on. (laughs) But Amy, it's really a delight to have you here. I I normally, you've listened to my my podcast, so you know what's coming in terms of this very first question. So you've had time to prepare, which I say is a bit unfair, but anyway, (laughs) Um, what does success look like to you? Yeah, it is unfair that I have thought about this question in advance, but I am a professional speaker too, which means I like to really craft my words. And so interviews are the hardest thing for me because there's no crafting. It's all on the fly, except this one question. (laughs) (laughs) I did know it was coming. I was thinking about this actually this morning. I was writing a guest blog for an influencer and I was thinking about what my life is all about. So at the end of my life, what made it successful? And I think my answer is really simple. I think I found my guidepost really to see how am I doing? Am I, am I living my life to the fullest? And the answer is, am I adding value to other people's lives? Mm. That is successful. If the answer is yes, I add value to people's lives then I feel like I'm, I'm giving it my best. Mm. And that has come from when I was 14, I went through a traumatic experience of my brother, Jeremy passing away in a drowning accident. And I was there and I was present for it. And it was a really defining moment in my life where 14, three weeks before starting high school, the drama of high school I had to grow up really quickly. And at that young of an age, it became very, very crystal clear to me that I must make my life count. I might only have 18 years like Jeremy, or I might have 50 or 80, but I don't know. So I'm going to make it count. And part of that as I've grown up is, I think, defining that as I've added value to other people's lives. That includes children and family, which is such the cliche thing to say, but it's true. And all your guests say it and it's true, but I think it goes beyond that. So is writing a book successful if it adds value to other people's lives? Yeah, I'm dang proud of that. Mm -hmm. Is speaking on stages across the country, not world yet, maybe invite me over, but is that successful if it adds value to people's lives? Mm -hmm. And actually that phrase came from a guest of yours previous long time ago, John Maxwell. Yeah. I was trying to find that episode and listen to it. 
And because I heard him in a speaking gig once say the first step to sharing hope with the world, which in his lens is through faith and mine as well. But the first step is just add value to people's lives, no strings attached, do life together. And that stuck with me. And I think that's, that's inspired my definition of success. Mm, What a definition. Have you struggled at all on the daily to, I guess, create this positive aspect and bring the world or people happiness and, and joy and positivity into their life? Have you struggled with that at all? Uh, have I struggled trying to have that positive impact? Yeah. Yeah. Not really. <laughs> People who know me know I'm a doer. And what that means is very quickly, if I see a need, I try to meet the need. And it's a really simple practice that affords me to try to make positive impacts in very little. I mean, we're going to talk about a really big way in just a minute, but in daily, very little ways I can make a positive impact on people. And I'm not diminishing the power of those little things. And so, no, I feel a great sense of positive impact on my community and the people around me. For example, I go to Rwanda about every year, not lately, but Rwanda is one of my favorite places on earth. And I heard a friend called me up from Rwanda last week. Hey, because of COVID and no school and staying at home, we're seeing a crisis in teenage unplanned pregnancies. Mm -hmm. And we need money because they're being shamed by their families and disowned. They need help medical insurance. They don't have anywhere to live. And I put together a five-year plan, but I I need resources to do it. And when he asks me for resources, I know it's a big deal because he doesn't ask me often. So I go to my Facebook, hey, everybody, I need your money. It's time we support teenagers, especially people who claim to be pro-life. Great. Vote every two, four years for whoever. But let's also put our money where our mouth is. And how are you going to support young women with unplanned pregnancies? Send me your money and I'm sending it to Rwanda. They need us. And $6,000 in the last six days have come in just from my friends just from my family, from college friends, from high school friends, from friends of friends. And so that's kind of an example recently in the last week of see a need, rally my troops. To me, I can't do it alone, but I have people who want to do good and I link arms with them and we do some pretty cool things together. Mm. I think it was, what was that movie? See a need, feel a need. I think it was like- uh, Is that a movie? It's a movie, it's a Disney movie. it was like that was the the phrase, see a need, feel a need. I think it was oh, robots so I, and Robin I, Williams in it. I stole it from a Disney movie. I didn't even <laughs> I didn't even know. No, it's like, in my book. I should not I should give him credit for that. <laughs> no, no, but like I think the 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 actual phrase is quite powerful because yeah. not many people actually want to feel a need. It's kind of in today's mm-hmm. day and age, it's almost like we are very selfish. I mean, I struggle with it as well. I hear of so many needs on a daily basis and I'm trying to figure out, okay, well, how can I help just one person, let alone thousands of people, millions? Completely. It's a very difficult thing. So I'm always Mm -hmm. admiring people that actually go above and beyond for other people. It's a very real challenge to overcome compassion fatigue where we do, we scroll through our news feeds and it's suffering after suffering after suffering, whether it be a school teacher of ours that was diagnosed with cancer, a a neighbor whose house burned down to a global pandemic, to a small business closing, right? There's so much need. It's really easy to keep scrolling and think, what good could I really do? But I'm going to challenge everyone listening. And if you buy my book, you're going to hear it again and again and again. And that is do something. You can, you can do something and you're not going to be the solution. You're not going to fix all the problems. We should, we shouldn't even try, Mm. but when something tugs on our heart, we do something and then amazing things or little things can happen. We hold the outcomes loosely, but we do choose to do something. Mm, I think you, you're right. Um, compassion fatigue. <laughs> it's it's ever prevalent. I notice like I get very, very tired 
not of doing this, not of speaking, not of trying to help people. I just get tired of um, creativity. <laughs> yeah. Like, I just like, I don't, sometimes I just don't know how to help. And then yeah. I go to people and I'm like, what's your idea here? How can, how can we form ideas together to help? And I think you got to, community is so important, banding together with individuals that have like-minded I guess, ideas or faith and trying to push a message or push this idea to help people. And that brings about what your book is about, I believe. It brings about change. It brings about that, that emotional like impact within, within a person's um, heart or mind. Yeah. Mm. I want to go back a little bit, Amy, to... You mentioned trauma in in your in your childhood when you were 14 years old. How you saw your brother drowning, which is a pretty yeah, no one should ever have to see that. Um, how did that change your view on life? Yeah, life beca- became no. I life got clearly fragile. Where I think sometimes when you're young, you think you have all this time. And, and for me, that there was a sense of urgency, which now sounds like impatience in my adult life where my husband would say, okay, we can altruistically call that urgency, but really you're just really impatient about a lot of things, which is fair. But a sense of urgency where like, don't get stuck in your own rut, Amy, you only have so many days and then, yeah, I go through funks and yes, I've gone through hard things, but there's a quick rebounding when there's this big perspective. So I got perspective when I was young, a sense of urgency when I was young and I've had to foster that. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to do the hustle Mm. of show up to work, try to get a raise, try to get a better job and then a better job and then try to grow your platform and then even more. And there's a hustle And I have learned uh, to try and resist the hustle, stay sensitive, keep my ears and my eyes open to the needs around me. And that really was birthed out of trauma. My pain brought me purpose, clarity of my purpose. Mm. What's been the biggest need that you've been able to fill for yourself? For myself? Yeah. You do it for others all the time, but for yourself. Well, I'm really terrible at meeting my own needs, but I will say I have an incredible community that meets my needs. So I have a husband who says, go to the girls weekend to relax, to not wear your mom hat. And he's not a babysitter. He's just a good dad who has no problem taking the kids for the weekend or I have parents, you know, a dad who groomed me to take over his business. And we have incredible high profile pinch me clients and corporations all over the country. And so my dad enables me with my dream job and my husband enables me in my friendships. And my mom is a saint. She's actually a pastor. So almost a saint and she's really wonderful. And she equips me and inspires me. She was my healthcare while I pursued a career. So, or my, I'm sorry, my uh, childcare system. When I pursued a career, she watched my kiddos. So it's a team effort over here. They fill my cup and I am a person of faith that we share that in common. And I think ultimately at 14, I really had to decide three things either. Nope. God doesn't exist Mm -hmm. or God exists and he's cruel or God exists and he's sovereign and I will never understand it this side of heaven. Mm. And at 14, I decided God is real and good and my life is hard and I'm going through unbearable pain and he's sovereign. Like I, at 14, really found this, t- I, I leaned into the tension instead of trying to reconcile it and find answers. And because of that, there's been a very sweet faith journey between me and God, and that sustains me. There's deep joy, deep peace, no matter what. 
was there something that helped you make that decision that God is sovereign and God is real? Nothing I can pinpoint. Mm, so you just can't. No. That. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And that might be, you know, 14 years of hearing about this love, this no strings attached love, this mm. relentless love for me and grace and this holy God and this need to be reconciled. And so all these truths in me, right? Like seeds in the ground. And then came the storm. Mm. And what does it do to the seed? And in my case, and I don't blame people who go through seasons of doubt and walk away. It's hard. But for some reason, I feel like in some sense, a miracle, I, that seed sprouted a genuine tested faith in a good that can overcome anything. And it's often, I find it very interesting how, because I've been through a lot of trauma in my own life. Mm -hmm. And I've always found it interesting because I grew up in a Christian family. I was taught everything under the sun about God, his, his faith, his, his, he's always faithful, right? And each and every time I went through those difficult moments, I always went back to, okay, God, why, why are you doing this to me? Of all the people in the universe, why are you doing it to me? So I began to question. And then, like, for example, he took away my beloved German Shepherd when I was, I think, 10. Um, so not, I was only young. So I was, I was experiencing loss for the very first time of something very precious traumatic then right after that along i lost my mentor my grandfather and that hit me like a ton of bricks yeah so two traumas in a very short space of time and i said to god i want you to i want you to save these people keep them alive for a long period of time and i'll do whatever you want you know I, yeah I, that right attitude towards it but then I didn't realize, and this is often the case for a lot of people, that when you go through the challenge, God is still there. He is enabling us to walk through it, but we're only able to see that when we look back. It's an amazing, amazing experience. Like when we get to the other side of that challenge, we are stronger. We are better for it but it ultimately comes down to this beautiful thing called a choice. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I realized that in all of this, I had a choice to believe that God was real, that God knew what he was doing in my life. Yeah. And that God was leading me to a better place. And that's not an easy thing to realize. And it's an amazing, um, I'm, like well done for being able to realize that at such a young age, because it's not an easy thing. No. And it didn't feel within my ability. I mean, the maturity of me at 14 was typical. So the fact that somehow a really deep mature thing came from what could have laid me out the rest of my life, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, it really does feel like quite a miracle. Nothing that I mustered up on my own strength, mm. but you brought up an interesting point. I, I, well, there, it's really hard when we've been on the other side of pain and trauma to not want to offer that perspective to people in the midst of their pain and trauma. Oh, yeah. So for example, okay. So I started this now, I started this movement with yard signs, which we can get into that because that's the premise or the backdrop of the book. When I talk about the power of love and hope and how I learned something through encouraging, uplifting yard signs. But one of the things I, I say in the book is that these kind words, like you matter, you are enough, you got this, don't give up. All these messages that we printed on yard signs and staked around our town, uh, they stirred up hope for people when they needed it for whatever reason, so many reasons. But it's these words are not meant to hurry people's healing or solve they're suffering, but they are meant to stir up hope unexpectedly driving to work or school where it just breaks up the negative thoughts and it comes out of nowhere. And you feel like, oh my gosh, that was for me. It was a sign that I prayed for or whatever it might be. But I would say one of the things that God has taught me and that I've just learned through life experience is we need to be unafraid of people's pain. 
where I can sit with someone and not try to teach them all the mature lessons I've learned over the course of 20 plus years after my trauma, right? To be tolerant of the tension and pain and to sit with it and not hurry it. Uh, that is a beautiful gift that we can offer others while they're in that journey, while they're figuring it out, while they're trying to get the lung wind back in their lungs after feeling knocked out. I'm always appreciative of the people in my life that were kind enough to just sit there and listen to me. Yeah. And that's all you need sometimes. You just need someone to sit there, listen to your pain, listen to your struggle, not to say anything really. But if they can relate to your story, then allow them to also share because there is beauty in that. There is yeah. this ability to be able to help one another. And that's, that's really kind. That's mm -hmm. kindness in action. Mm -hmm. When two people come together, one's been through pain, one's going through pain, then they're able to share and they're able to help. There's this weird thing that happens though, which is our human nature. And it just has a mind of its own <laughs> where sometimes when we're trying to share pain, we start to compare pain. Mm. And I, I told you, I go to Rwanda often when I do, I meet with groups of survivors from the 1994 genocide. Mm. I meet them with because of a connection of a mutual friend, a good friend, Ben Kayumba, who is Rwandan and survived himself. And he leads me to these groups. Now I have a relationship with them. And they do this thing where they they collectively come together a hundred or so to share, take turns sharing their trauma and their stories, which over since 1994, some of them have still never said out loud some of the atrocities that they saw or experienced. And I, we sit there and we listen to their stories, feeling completely undeserving to hear them. And then Ben always predictably turns to me or my team and says, your turn to share. And eyes dart around the room like, no, -uh, no way. Because my pain does not come close to their pain. What I have suffered does not come close to what they suffered. I have no good words for them. I have nothing to offer. Who am I? How did I get here? And I diminish my suffering in the light of other people's. And Ben has so wise, and he taught me that it is simply you being here. We don't need heroes with capes, Amy. We don't need white saviors <laughs> to come. What we want is that someone showed up and cared to hear us and they're showing up and they're caring to hear you. They're not comparing your story with theirs. And sure enough, I share and they're weeping and they're wiping tears with their, the ends of their coats, coat jackets. And, you know, the, a fairly non-emotive culture, suddenly they're weeping for me and my loss and what I've experienced. And so what you mentioned is really a beautiful solidarity in humans coming together not trying to compare the pain, but willing to sit with each other, hold the space for it, and then be vulnerable to share when there's trust involved, of course. And it often is hard because I, I believe the human condition is we, some people, they find it difficult to trust. And especially when you're going through trauma, that's very personal to us. And everyone's going through their own sense of trauma at different levels, like some may you never know they may never want to actually share anything and that's completely fine don't force them to like right allow them that time that when they are ready and mm -hmm. they are able to share and if they do trust you to come to you and you don't i love how you mentioned the comparison don't compare just listen and then once they have shared everything just say i love you it's okay. Because I had people say that to me. And oftentimes, even, um, I don't know if you've done much research in this as well, but when we hug someone, that trans, that energy transfer, it's another beautiful moment. And uh, I've been in places where a friend of mine, like after I went through a traumatic experience, he just didn't say anything. He just embraced me, said, I love you, bro. 
come here. And I, I'm, I'm sort of like, I'm not that kind of person to hug. Time, <laughs> but just having someone in that embrace, it just took away a lot of pain. Yeah. Isn't it so simple? I think sometimes we complicate what is it like, what does it look like to live a life of impact, which is something that I tease out and wrestle and question and wonder and discuss in the book. What does this life of impact look like? What does it look like to take action, to do something, to add value to people's lives? What does that look like? And what you gave as an example is such a beautiful illustration of the small things It's the hug. It's the friend who's not going to try to plaster encouraging, inspiring words over your wounds, but sit in it with you and not try to offer untimely advice. I mean, you'll remember that forever. Those moments when people showed up with no agenda. And that's one of the ways that we can live a life of impact, certainly. Mm. And also going towards your book and and your your movement, these signs, that's another, because people, a lot of people, they, they see something and it goes directly to their brain. They start processing it. And then if it's kind words, automatically we get that sense of enjoyment, that, that sense of positivity just bursting with inside of us. Um, I'm curious, you've got all these, these signs, right? Why did you decide to actually write a book in the first place? Well, that's a great story, Jay. And the answer is I got an email in the May, in June of 2019. Our movement went viral. Young mom uses yard signs in the wake of suicides in her community to spread hope or something along those lines. And Washington Post is interviewing me and all these medias are approaching me. And I get an email and in the subject line, it says from a literary agent. And it was one line in the email, have you thought about writing a book, Mark? And I was like, hi, Mark, who are you? And so I got approached about writing the book because obviously our story of trying to help in our community through what happened to be Yard Signs at the time, now a bunch of different products all sold at cost. We don't make any money. We're a nonprofit just trying to make love and hope tangible, give people tokens to do something when they feel helpless, but they want to help. And they said, well, you should write a book about it. So it's been two years and now it's in your pretty little hands there in Australia. And we'll be launching in April worldwide available online to pre-order now, but that's where it came from. It wasn't my idea. It kind of feels like the movement itself and the book itself found me. I didn't even go and find it. Did you ever find it difficult to actually write this book? Because I know writing a book is is a yeah. big Have you ever done one? Have you ever written a book? I have actually. I, I finished my the first draft of my first ever book. Uh, and it's being edited on March the 1st. Oh, that's so exciting. You're in the middle of the literary stream and it's a crazy journey. So I'm going to cheer you on, certainly. Thanks. It was a really positive process for me. I wasn't rushed to do it. I had sat front row to the goodness of humanity and the ways that people were using our tokens and spreading out, you know, handing out our wristbands at foster kid camps and and taking our signs to mental health clinics and posting them on school properties. And I had been watching all this happen and stories flooding our emails of, I encountered your sign at the right place at the right time and you need to know the impact. And so all these stories I have been collecting and letting settle over my heart. So when it came time, when someone said you should write a book, I had so much to share. And they weren't necessarily my stories, although certainly I share those as well. My journey of claiming hope for myself, my journey of how to, how to learn how to spread hope with people around me. But it really is a collection of other people's stories too. Mm. And so, no, I found it I found it fairly easy. I'll tell you what, though. Any of you listening in college, when you get an essay assignment and it has a certain word count attached to it and your file 
like review tool word count and you're counting the words every five minutes of writing. That's how I felt with this book. They pay you for a certain amount of words. And I was word counting that document throughout the process. That was a bit stressful in that there's a deliverable that I take seriously that I am accountable for. But you've done that. You've turned in the manuscript. So you passed that hurdle in writing. Did you did you cut out a lot of your book? You know what? I was very nervous about that editing feedback. I thought it was going to be redlined. I thought I would spend two months reviewing the edits and changing. And I was very pleasantly surprised that I have very few edits and didn't take out anything. Wow. I know, I know for me that I'm going to have a lot of edits. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know. You don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I, I sort of have a feeling in my gut because, yeah, I, I kind of struggle with grammar. So oh. that's like my nemesis. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> the there's... stories are all there, though. For people who haven't written a book and maybe you aspire to or this sounds fascinating, there's several different steps to the process and your manuscript you finish and submitted for edits. The first round of editing is generally big ideas, uh, clarity, um, anything for me. It was you always introduce these stories, but you insert these stories, but you don't really introduce who it was. And so going back and doing that every chapter. Then round two of editing is you said a, you said the second pot of coffee is that the co coffee from the same pot brewed twice or two separate pots. And I thought, holy cow, this is fact checking on a whole new level in that grammatical turn of phrase that is coming, but it might not be in round one. Uh, <laughs> you think you're right? <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just like, yeah, I know for a fact it's coming. <laughs> okay, that's so, fair. But I'm, I'm always, um, I'm very proud of people that actually do write their very first book because I know personally firsthand just how hard it actually is to put what's up here mm -hmm. on here. Yeah. And for me, real quickly, Amy, before I turn it back to you, please. I talk about in my in my book uh, how it took me a year figuring out what I didn't want to say and a year figuring out what I needed to say. And Ooh. like the very very first draft was shocking. <laughs> it was it was terrible because I wrote it <laughs> from a place of sheer pain, um. and there was nothing really good about it. It was just like me venting. And I shelved it and I'm like, what am I going to, I'm never going to write a book, you know, whole the, yeah, the whole negative uh, emotions and thoughts came mm. from my brain. And it was shelved for about a couple of months, but it was an interesting thing. A few months after I'd shelved it, I came up with another idea for another book. Huh. And I was like, oh, okay, well, should I start that book and, and work on that book or should I, go back to my first book, finish that one, then work. On <laughs> so it was like this, this very interesting thing. So I ended up yeah. writing two books in the space of about two years. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. The second one just flowed out of me. Like that was so much better. But the first one, the reason why it was because it was so personal. Mm. So, and I had to relive all, yeah. all the stories, all of the mm. memories, the traumas, and figure out, okay, what do I want to say to people here? Yeah. Yeah. So, but speaking about your book for a moment and <laughs> getting it away from me. <laughs> I um, love it. What has been in, in this book for someone that picks it up uh, and wants to turn to a particular story that you mm. would just say, okay, this is my favorite story in here. I want you to turn here and, and read it. <sighs> Which I definitely, you know, it's one of those things where chapters are like children. You feel like you shouldn't have a favorite, but you might. And I, I love both my daughters equally for the record, but I do have favorite chapters. One is the story about being in Rwanda and having this crisis of, I have nothing to offer these people and the beautiful exchange of tears and love that ensued. That's chapter four, I think think. And then chapter seven is probably a chapter that I could write a whole book about. 
Chapter seven is about putting new matter on a yard sign and sticking it in my yard, but not meaning it really. Feeling like I meant it, but realizing I didn't mean it for people who voted differently than me. I didn't mean it for people who looked differently from me. I didn't mean it for my LGBTQ community who are different from me. I didn't mean it because when we mean it, when we say you matter and mean it, it takes up more than grass in our yard. It takes up our time. It takes up our emotion. We listen, we read, we learn, we engage. And it's a chapter about how do we love well people who are different from us? What does that look like? And so I was, I just listened to your episode with Sean King and it was so informative. And in that chapter, I talk about, you know, rewind years ago saying, I don't have white privilege. I don't get why people keep saying that. I'm really kind. I love everyone. I don't see color. (laughs) Fast forward to now, I see color and it's beautiful. I understand how my white skin has afforded me more opportunity because of systems. Mm -hmm. I see and catch racist thoughts Mm -hmm. in my mind that are knee-jerk biases. And so I am honest about this evolution of not understanding a group of people. And when you get in proximity, when you're willing to lay aside your assumptions and you listen and you get in proximity and you flex your empathy muscle. Okay. Maybe I don't get it, but man, if I were in their shoes, I get why they feel that way. Mm-hmm. Right. So practicing empathy really liberated me to love well, even people who voted different, even people who spoke words I would never use or whatever. I have that chapter really encompasses the soul work that I've done in the last couple of years of getting with people who are different from me, having those hard, awkward conversations, leaning into the tension, being unafraid of the hard things. And so that chapter, I hope that when people read this book, you know, signs of hope, this concept that we can be signs of hope. I mean, there are literal signs of hope on the cover, but that the the basis of the book is we can be signs of hope. We can love well, we can spread hope, we can take hope for ourselves. And I hope that it's equal parts like chicken soup for the soul where you're reading these stories and you're just so moved stories of people choosing to do something and that something ended up being the most beautiful grassroots, cool impact. But I hope you get to chapter seven and it hurts a little. I hope you cringe a little. I hope you're willing to assess where's the limit of my love. Who am I refusing to love? Who's hard for me to understand? And in that way, I hope this book is equally inspiring and challenging as we figure out what does it mean to love well? I could just leave the conversation right there. <laughs> <laughs> the The chapter that you're referring to, I was just flicking through while you were saying that amazing speech. Um, <laughs> that can be a podcast in of itself. <laughs> uh, it's called Ditching the Cape. Oh, yeah. chapter four. Yeah, the Rwanda experience. Mm-hmm. I think I would, um, this new idea of ditching the veil that's, put in front of a lot of people's eyes from a very young mm. age system, the way we yes. created, because it's very much, okay, this person is different to you because of the way they look, the color of their skin. We're all taught that. No one, no one is born with, oh, I know right. that I'm a different color. No, 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 it's all taught. So if we can change that, the way that we are taught, the way we see the world, mm-hmm. if we can give people the right tools necessary to be able to remove this veil, then I think that the world would be a completely different place. If we can also give people signs of hope through mm-hmm. our own life, through our own stories, yeah, then imagine the difference that we can make. It's inspiring. I feel motivated. I want to leave this interview and go do something. I mean, I think, I think that's what does like we need courage stirs courage and hope stirs hope. And when you, when you truly believe you have something to offer, which is a whole nother topic, I suppose, because I do want to say I am not perfect and I have my wounds 
and I have the things I'm struggling with right now. And yet you still have something to offer. I still have something to offer. So it's not like we should wait till we have our life figured out. We have all of our stuff together. When we have that steady job, when we're past the divorce, when we're we fill in the blank, don't wait. Don't wait. Give what you can within your capacity, but not waiting for not waiting for the perfect time, but to do, now be encouraged, be inspired through. I love that your podcast is about unboxing stories because I think we relate to each other's stories and it motivates us to live a life of purpose. It motivates us to connect with others. And I, I love that. I would preach that. Mm-hmm. I do preach that. I wrote about it, I suppose. So that is my, my, my preaching. I just got paid to do it this time, but I, I hope that people hear this and feel this brewing, this uncomfortable brewing of what is the something I can do? I can live a life of impact. And maybe you already are, but maybe there's different ways. You know, I have this movement and I can say, oh, I'm doing my thing. I'm doing this side hustle that doesn't pay me. And it's encouraging people all over the world. Check. No, I got to keep my heart tender. I got to help my neighbor across the street for me, not just shipping things across the world for me. And so there's the, we just can never count ourselves out. And we have to stay open-handed, open-hearted to each other. Mm. And I think what you're doing is honestly amazing. And it should be spread far and wide. It should be popular. It should be famous. <laughs> that honestly, like we need this kind of message. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you fit perfectly with what the story box is really about. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you have been able to share your part of just part of your story. I know there's so much more to it. Um, and, but my, my final two questions for you, you you've listened to like my last, my legacy question. No, I haven't heard that. I haven't gotten to the end of all these interviews. I start them and never finish them. Oh, I'm wow. not prepared. Okay. Okay. I'm not prepared. Here we go. Okay. <laughs> so you mentioned legacy at the very beginning. Uh, and so I want to tie it into kind of, I think I kind of know what you're going to say, but we'll see. So it's a hypothetical question, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. Your friends have all decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of an argument. They've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? That I saw people. That I saw them. They felt seen by me. I hope they... It is a highlight reel of me cheering people on. And I hope in that reel, it shows every moment that other people cheered me on because it is so needed, it mutually needed, right? But uh, I hope it is a highlight reel of people feeling seen and loved by me. I see you, I hear you, love your story. And my final question for you, it's more of a fun one (laughs) Uh, because I want to leave people on a high note. Sure. Okay, I'm curious. What is the weirdest food combination you've ever tried? Oh, dear Lord. (laughs) What is the weirdest food combination? I'll try anything once. Because you've been to Rwanda. I mean, I have eaten some strange, you know, I managed like 10 years going there and never really eating anything too outside my comfort zone, except last year. (laughs) It was bad but it wasn't a combination of food it was just goat on a stick so it wasn't a combination oh yeah i can't think of anything that we eat regularly or is it completely weird and out of the blue the flavor what oh uh hard to describe just dry meat dry (laughs) flavorless meat that you had to chew a thousand times before swallowing (laughs) Uh, i think that's my best answer i really i really I can't think of a terrible combination, although my kids sure think of interesting ones, but I can't think of one. That's all right. Amy, <laughs> where, can people, where can people find you, connect with you, uh, learn more about you, buy your new book uh, and, yeah. and bless you. 
Thank you. Yeah, you can find more about the movement on Instagram or Facebook. It's Don't Give Up Signs. You can also go to don'tgiveupsigns.com and you'll see more about my book and places you can buy it. And you can also see all the goodies. We're on video chat, so you can see all the products sitting behind me here in the office that we sell at cost with kind words. Go be kind. Go spread generously these messages that inspire hope in others. You can find me personally at Amy N. Wolf on Instagram, on Facebook. And then I do share my thoughts in essay form when I feel it flowing through my fingertips like you did on your second book. That happens in blog essay form once in a while. And you can find those at amynwolf.com. Amy Wolf, thank you so much for coming on the Storybox podcast today. Thank you. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.